Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. Follow along on the screen behind me. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their mind. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They become callous and give themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But this is not what you learned, Christ. Assuming that you have learned of him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is true, that it is trustworthy, that we can depend on it, God, that we can learn of you and hear from you when we open it up. And God, I pray as we do that today as a community, as a family, as a church, that you would speak to us and that you would change us through the power of your word, through the direction of your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would Encourage us with what you have to say to us today, God, and that we would walk out of here having not only experienced you, but grown in our knowledge of you, our understanding of you, and our love for you. Well, thank you for all of that in the good name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So I am a, I am a part of the generation that has effectively rejected uh, news channels. Anyone in here watch the news on a regular basis used to be that uh, you know you something would happen and you'd have to wait till the next day to find out that it happened and then it was that you had to wait until 6 p.m. and then you could at any point during any day at any time during the day flip it to a certain channel and find out what was going on uh, and then there was more than one of those and then there was way too many of those you know what I'm saying uh, I actually get my news from two sources one of them is I, I read blogs and the other is Twitter, <laughs> because uh, I'm not trying to hear people talk about the news. I just want the news, right? And there's lots of channels based on whatever perspective they have and whoever they hire. They're going to tell you what they think about the news. And I'm always like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I just want to know what happened. I'll, I'll decide what I think about that. I just want you to tell me what happened. And actually, the best place that I, I go to get that is Twitter, believe it or not, because people all over the world are telling you what happened, oftentimes from the place that it happened. And they're just saying, hey, FYI, and uh, in 140 characters or less, uh, which is great. I don't have to watch an hour to find out the news. Uh, the other place is that I, I, I read blogs. And if you're not familiar with blogs, these are basically little articles that people put out. And you can get a blog aggregate, which means you go to one website and 50 or 60 different streams will come into it. And so someone writes a blog and it automatically updates. And I hop onto my handy-dandy iPad or iPhone or whatever, and I can just scroll down through those. A couple years ago, uh, there was a series of blogs written by different people that had very similar titles to them. One was Stuff White People Like. (laughs) And uh, and everyone in Wisconsin read it, for obvious reasons. Um, (laughs) And then, of course, in response to Stuff White People Like, Stuff Black People Like came out. And... No one in Wisconsin read it. Oh, come on now. Nolan and I read it. Because I'm a brother deep in my heart, and you are in your heart and other places too. All right. Um, (laughs) uh, (laughs) And then there's a guy by the name of John. (laughs) It might be a long day. I'm just saying, all right? I lost an hour's sleep of no fault of my own. I'm just saying. then, then a guy by the name of John Acuff came out with a blog called Stuff Christians Like, and he actually leveraged that into a book, and, and you can go to Amazon, and you can buy it. I actually own it, and uh, it's a very funny book, and I want to give you my top five favorite things out of that book, all right? So uh, starting into the you know, new time frame and all that, what better way than to give you the top five Stuff Christians Like from John Acuff through Tim Dunn. Here we go. Are you ready? Number one, Christians are very protective of our holidays. Things like keep Christ in Christmas. And things like we don't celebrate Halloween, right? 
Christians are very, very serious about keeping Christ in Christmas. Now, we acknowledge the fact that Christmas was not ever a Christian holiday, that it was in fact a pagan holiday, (laughs) and that somewhere along the way the church co-opted it, but we just want you to make sure that you keep Christ in Christmas. Now, here's the thing. At Damascus Road, we want you to keep Christ in Christmas, but we also want you to keep Christ in Tuesday. You know what I'm saying? So, number five, we are very, very serious about our holidays. Number four, we like to preach against gambling. Gambling is bad. Gambling is destructive. Gambling puts people in bondage, unless you're talking about March Madness or fantasy football. And then, (laughs) we do not want you to preach against gambling. All right? Very serious matter. I do not stand up here and talk badly about fantasy football or the Packers, as I have learned the hard way. All right? Number three. Side hugs. (laughs) I love, love, love watching two people stand in, we call this the sanctuary. We don't know why, we just do. Uh, It's actually just a room, but they come into the sanctuary and they'll see one another for the first time or or they haven't for a while and they do this thing. Hey man, whoop. (laughs) See what I did there? Because we don't know if it's proper to, to... actually hug in the sanctuary. And so just to be safe, side hug. All right. Number two, we expect more and blame our kids for things. Let me give you two examples. We expect our kids to memorize more verses than we do any other adult in the entire church. Like when your kids go through class, we say, hey, kids, you should learn about the Bible and you should memorize verses. And we make them memorize When you get above 21, we say things like this. Oh, man, you know how my memory is, right? The other thing that we do is when somebody asks us a difficult theological question, who do we blame? We blame the kids. I don't know, man. I just got faith like a child. So we use the kids when we don't know, and we expect the kids to do things that we don't expect ourselves to do. That's stuff Christians like. And then number one, are you ready? It's my favorite one and might put me over the limit for inappropriate statements today, but it's so good, I have to tell you. Here we go. You don't seem like you're ready. Okay. Number one, stuff Christians like. Ranking honeymoon sex slightly higher than the return of Jesus. (laughs) I remember the first time (laughs) that a young man pulled me aside and very serious, said to me, hey man, (laughs) I know this is probably wrong, but I really hope that Jesus doesn't come back before my honeymoon. (laughs) And I said, knowing the answer to this question, just that I wanted him to awkwardly verbalize it, really, why is that? (laughs) To which he responded, Well, you know, to which I responded, no, I don't. (laughs) And he goes, sex, man. Oh, sex. So you're going to have sex on your honeymoon? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that makes sense then. All right. So, And I've had that conversation, uh, I don't know, 439 times since then. Okay. So I, I, I thought that that, and I, you know, inside was laughing and then around, 50 times, I just now expect it. So if, you're, if you ever do premarital counseling with me, feel comfortable to verbalize that you hope that the world stays in utter darkness and sin before you get to have sex, all right? So there are, there are, <laughs> there are uh, things that we do that we don't even think about that we do them, right? Uh, nobody walks around and thinks about the complete hypocrisy of preaching against gambling and fantasy football. Nobody thinks about, you know, making your kids memorize verses when you can't quote John 3.16. 3, we, don't, we don't think about that. Um, and, and some of those things, they, we bring them up and we laugh and it's good and it's funny. But some of the things that we do are really indicative of who we are. And there are things that we need to examine uh, and, and consider and kind of expose in order to really evaluate our values and our identity and the things that we worship. When you read through the Bible, you notice that the Bible doesn't spend a lot of time addressing major cultural issues. There are lots of times whenever you're wanting to find uh, God just point blank talk about 
uh, about taxes, right? And what do we do with taxes and, and, and investments and, and even more serious issues like slavery? And, uh, and God doesn't always necessarily do that. But here's what God does do. He spends an inordinate amount of time on personal matters and daily relationships. And I think there's a couple reasons for that. The first is that I think that we have fallen, uh, fallen prey to the enemy making us think that theology is an impractical pursuit. Like theology is something that pastors talk about it. And then you go to, you go to school and that you, you, you hear about theology and then the Bible and scripture and doctrine. And it's just not a part of our lives. When in fact, God is kind of saying to us, your theology is the primary dictator of your lives. It's, the, it's what makes you who you are. What you believe about God is going to define how you view the world and how you pursue things that are of interest to you and how you define values and what gives you your identity. The second thing that I think is important about this is that it's really easy for us to consider the Bible as an out there somewhere idea. And it's easy for us to stand up and crusade around other things over there that we should get involved in and that we should care about. And we can rah-rah and get excited about that, and that's all well and good. But I've noticed that whenever we stop talking about over there and we start talking about in here, it gets pretty uncomfortable, doesn't it? And so we like to think that theology is impractical, and we like to think that theology is the out there somewhere. But here's what God's saying. Theology is the in here. And God wants to peel that back And God seems to say to us that people who are dealing with the gospel in here will care about the out there, but not the other way. And so there are times when we come to Scripture that God has culturally or even honestly uh, a a candid word for us, a a surgical word for us. And I want to caution you against kind of stiffening toward that. I want to caution you against rebutting that, and I want to caution you against a a defensive spirit, and here's the reason. If we want to be changed people, changed people, people of depth and of texture, we need God to show us the reasons that we do what we do. And if we're ever going to be people who are cities on a hill, who are people that others look at and say, I want what that person has, inward transformation precedes outward devotion. You hear what I said? Inward transformation precedes outward devotion, hashtag everyday saints, all right? You are not ever going to make a difference out there if you will not allow God to make a difference in here. And in order for God to make a difference in here, we have to trust him, we have to, as it were, lay on the surgery table, and we have to say, God, I believe what you say is true, and I submit myself wholly to you, around the words that you have for us today. And so I'm going to caution you. I'm going to caution you, especially in the first probably 40% of this message, to not, to not get, uh, you want to say communion already? We'll get there. All right. To not, um, to not be defensive. To not be defensive and, and to ask the Holy Spirit to lead you as he sees fit. In the book of Ephesians The first three chapters, Paul talks about us being in a seated posture before God. That God does a work while we rest in that work. In chapter 4, it starts with that he wants us to walk worthy. And so there's this transition of us receiving by the grace of God who he is and what he's done. And in chapter 4, it transitions to us living that out. In 4 verse 1, he says, I want you to walk worthy. In 4 verse 17, he's saying... I don't want you to walk the way that the Gentiles walk. Now, the Gentiles is a cultural reference. It's a people group, but it's essentially those who are outside of a relationship with God. And so what Paul's going to do is he's going to give us a comparative study of two kinds of lifestyles, two types of frameworks, two types of ways of looking at the world and pursuing things that are valuable to us. And he's going to do it in three ways. One, he's going to introduce us to an old man and to a new man. So not old like you're above 35, all right? I'm above 35. Relax. See, I'm just, I was testing the defensive thing. So if someone would be like, what did he just say? That, oh, you failed the test. All right. Old man and new man. The way of the Gentiles and the way of Jesus. And one he tells us to put off and one he tells us to put on. Now, whenever Paul's talking about the old man, the way of the Gentiles, and calling us to put 
off certain perspectives. He's talking about sin. And here's something that I've noticed about sin. We don't like to come to church and hear people talk about it. It's one of those topics that just gets us feeling squirrely and squirmy. And, and, and if we're completely honest, we have emotions and feelings that come up when people talk about sin that are defensive, that are self-protecting, and that are a little bit self-righteous. Like, who are you to stand up there and talk about sin to me? In that way. And I'll say to you, on the very front end, I'm nobody. I'm a sinner. I'm hearing this exactly as you are. But when we get to the place at Damascus Road Church where it is improper for us to talk about sin when God's word is open, we are giving up that necessary topic for inward transformation. You got to talk about sin if our hearts are ever going to be truly transformed. It's part of the gospel. It's part of the grandeur of the gospel that God loves us while we are sinful, while we are against him. While we are rebellious, God's just not some good guy who looks down at Tim and says, you know, he's all right. I think I'll go with him. He looks down at Tim while Tim is flashing double middle fingers to him. While Tim is against him, while Tim is in rebellion, while Tim says, I'll take it from here, God. And God loves me in my sinful state and removes me from my sinful state by the blood of Jesus and transforms me by the blood of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of God of Tim and others. We have to talk about sin. And whenever Paul talks about sin, he doesn't do it to kind of stick his thumb in everybody's eye, which is how we receive it. He doesn't do it to be oppressive. He doesn't do it to be condemning. He does it for three reasons. One is to define. Two is to warn. And three is to remind. First, he talks about sin to help us define sin. In Paul's day and in our day, the goalpost of the standard of God keeps getting moved. It keeps getting moved. And I know lots of Christians who think that the Bible very clearly says, this is wrong. Our perspective is, maybe. And so Paul is going to come along and he's going to remind us and define for us the fact that God is the standard. That the standard isn't some list somewhere out there, that the standard is a person. And that the definition of sin is anything that does not mimic or is not in worship of God. And God does this because he wants us to know who he is, and he wants us to know what he's called us to. The second thing is he does it to warn us. First, to define sin. Secondly, to warn us about sin. And here's the reason. Sin is not benign. It's not benign. It's not neutral. Sin is, is destructive. And sin is, is, is real and has real consequences. And God does not tell us about sin to be a killjoy. He tells us about sin because he's a good daddy. He tells us about oncoming traffic because he doesn't want us to get hit by it. He tells us about cliffs. And he tells us about, about bad things and, and bad situations so that we can avoid them. Not because he's trying to keep us from it. Because he's trying to keep us safe. And so God warns us about sin not to condemn us but to let us know that there's a better Savior and that there's a better way and that it's Him and that He's available to us. Lastly, to remind us, and here's the reason that we need to be reminded about sin. God's people all through Scripture and all through time very easily forget what bondage feels like. Whenever God redeemed the people of Israel out of Egypt, very quickly, do you know what they did? They got out in the wilderness and they thought back to their time in Egypt when they were slaves, and here's what they said. Oh man, those leeks and that garlic was unbelievable. What I would give for some leeks. What? Leeks, I love leeks. Do you like being beat? No, but I like leeks. You, you see, this is, this is what we do. And I've noticed that people come to DR and they're very newly saved by God and they're very clear, I don't want to go back there. And I've also noticed people who come in and they've been saved by God for 5, 10, 15 years and their conception of what sin does to them is a distant memory. And what I've noticed is that when sin becomes a distant memory to us, its attractiveness becomes more tempting. Don't ever let anyone tell you that sin isn't attractive. Scripture says that sin is fun. Here it is for a season. It's fun for a season. So God reminds us of what bondage feels like, what it costs, 
when it occurs. And in grace, listen, he reminds us that his way isn't only right, it's best. It's best. And if you're like me, I need to be reminded about what sin is. I need to be newly warned about sin, and I need to be reminded of not only where I was when God saved me, but where I would be if he hadn't. Where I would be if he hadn't. In verses 17 through 19 of chapter 4, Paul is going to lay out for us six words describing what sin is. Six words describing what sin is. I want you to read it along with me, and then we're going to unpack it a little bit. Verse 17, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now, if I were to ask you to give me a definition of sin, tell me what sin is, I think that I'd probably get a wide variety of answers. And I think that if we were completely honest, that most of them would be at least generically vague. Well, sin is, uh, I don't know. The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible gives us some very clear descriptives of what sin is. And I think it's important for us to take the time to look through them. The first thing that Paul says is that sin is a hardness of our heart. It's a hardness of our heart. That whenever we are doing life and evaluating our values and evaluating who's in charge, can we just turn that light off? No? It's all or nothing? Okay. Meaning we'll be in the complete dark if we... Okay. Right on. Hardness of our heart. Back to sin. Um, the hardness of our heart, that, that whenever we, we look up at God and we say, God, we'll, we'll take it from here, and God, we'll take my definition, and God, I'll, 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 uh, I'll be in charge, and I'll be king, and I'll be the ruler, that that creates a callousness, and that creates a, a hardness. In other words that the Bible uses, it creates a stiff-neckedness. I don't know if you've ever been with your kids and you tell them to do something they don't want to do. What happens to their neck? Right? Have you ever noticed that? Do you know that we do the same thing with God? That our heart gets hard. And, and, and when you think about the hardness of our heart, we can just make this very simple. Hardness in, of, of a heart is the opposite of soft and submissive. That our heart is sinful when our heart isn't soft to God. When our heart isn't, yes, God. When our heart isn't, thank you, God. When our heart isn't in adoration and love and worship of God. Our heart gets hard. And when our heart gets hard, our neck gets stiff. Our neck gets stiff. That's why we always want to be dealing with our hearts. Why we always want to be tenderizing our hearts. Why we always want to be attentive to the Spirit of God so that our heart is receptive and ready to the leadership and grace of God in our lives. Secondly, he says that it's ignorant. It's ignorant. Now, he's not talking about naive here. Because there are times that people do things that they don't know are sinful. And I don't think that God is is waiting with a hammer, right? But God does say this. He says that he is knowable, that he is revealed, and that he is accessible. And God says this, that if you do not have a relationship with him, it may be because you've never heard. But most of the people in this room, it's because you don't want one. Because God is here, because God is present, because God is available. And Romans chapter 1 says that we know who he is and we know what he says. We just don't want his rulership in our life. And so the ignorance that we have is not naive, it's willful. It's willful. That God is present for us and that we look at him and we say, I don't want that. I don't want that. And we do this all over the place, right? We do this in our marriage, we do this with our kids, we do this with our finances, we do this with our anger, we do this with our addictions, we do this with our habits. We look at God, and it's not that we don't know what he's calling us to, so we don't want it. So out of hardness of our heart, we live in willful ignorance. Thirdly, he says that it's alienation. Alienation, that sin separates us from God. That when I look at God and I say, no thank you, God doesn't say, oh no, you're going to have me. That God allows us to stiff-arm him out of stiff-necked, hard-hearted, willful ignorance. And that we can choose to have willful separation and alienation from God. Here's the other part of it. Sin alienates us from one another, doesn't it? 
doesn't only alienate us from God, it alienates us from one another. And we know this in our relationships, that when one of us is prideful, when one of us is contentious, when one of us is angry, when one of, one of us is, is, is mean-spirited and nasty, what does it, what does it create? It creates, creates alienation. And where does that alienation come from? It comes from willful ignorance and hard-heartedness. Whenever I'm in relationship and I'm right and I'm proud, I know what I should be doing. I just don't want to. And we can couch this however we want, right? Because we don't, we don't necessarily like to talk about sin as the Bible talks about sin because it's ugly. It's ugly. It's ugly for me to say, I would rather be right than be in relationship with you. It's ugly for me to say that, but that's true, isn't it? It's true. It's ugly for me to say, I know how I should treat my kids. I know how I should love my wife. Sometimes I just don't want to do it. I stiffen my neck to God, and it creates alienation between me and God, and it creates alienation between me and them. The fourth one that he says is that sin is greedy. Sin is greedy. And there's two aspects of this. The first is just the, the most obvious definition, that sin never says, all right, all right, I'm done. Does it? Sin never says that. If you've ever struggled in addiction or you've ever struggled with, with things in your personality that you just have a hard time stopping, there's never a point at which sin relents. The scripture actually says that the eyes of man are never full. Never full. Sin never taps out. Sin never says, okay, I've broken enough things, I've hurt enough people, I'm done. It's greedy. It also says that this greediness results in this giving oneself up. And I, and, and, and I think it's important for us to, to realize this, that and we, I see this a lot more in, in our culture. This giving ourselves up to, to sinfulness is this idea of, look, look, this is just who I am. It's just who I am. And, and if, I, if I were going to change, I don't really know how I would do that, but quite frankly, I'm not going to try, and quite frankly, um, I don't want to. This is just who I am, and you need to deal with that. This is just what I'm about, and you need to deal with that. What is that? The Bible doesn't say that that's, that's you know, us getting comfortable in our skin. The Bible says that that is us giving ourselves up to sin. I don't get to look at you and say, look, I just got a bad temper, man. Just who I am. I don't know. I just, I just got a, a terrible porn habit. I don't know. It's just who I am. I just... I just keep being attracted to women who aren't my wife. Just, this is the perspective that we take sometimes. You need to deal with my sin because I'm not going to. The Bible says that that's greedy and that it's sinful and that it's hard-hearted and that it's willful ignorance and that it alienates. It alienates. It doesn't make us closer. It doesn't make us closer. And that's the thing that's important for you to understand that the, the narrative of the world that says that if you just get comfortable with my junk, we'll be better off. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that God saves us from our junk and makes us better off. But in order for God to redeem as he intends, our hearts have to be soft. We have to know him as he says that he is, and we have to repent of the alienation that our sin and our greed creates. Third, fifthly, says that sin is unclean. Sin is unclean. And what does that mean? It means that it <laughs> makes messes. That I make messes because I'm a mess. That's what sin is. It doesn't mean that I make messes, but I'm good. It means I make messes because I'm a mess. It means that my, my behaviors are indicative of my heart. That's why the Bible says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We have this conception that I say stuff that's completely devoid and disconnected from what I really think. That's not what the Bible says. It says that sin is, is unclean and that the people who are a mess make messes. And then lastly, he talks about sin as walking. And so here's what I want you to notice. The Bible talks about sin in this case Five out of six happen in an invisible way, right? They, they, they aren't things that happen outwardly. They start in the mind, they infect the heart, and then they finally come out in our walk, in our lifestyle. 
In other words, the Bible talks about sin as something that starts in my heart before you ever see me do it, it's already happening. Before you ever hear me say it, it's already there. I'm already thinking about it. I already believe it. I'm already pursuing it. I'm already stiffening my neck. I'm already willfully ignorant. I'm already willing to sacrifice the relationship with you. I'm already willing to give myself up to sin. I'm already willing to make a mess. And then finally it comes out. Sin doesn't just happen. Sin, listen, is who we are outside of Jesus. It's who we are. And Paul says that these six things are, listen, corrupt and futile. And here's how I want you to think about this. Futility is the idea of feeling like you're making progress, but you're not, right? And so here's what he says. He says that the sinful mind thinks that it's progressing. Thinks that it's progressing, but it's not. It's actually stuck, and it's stuck in its corruption. Wow. This is, this is a... This is a bleak picture. When you really look at what sin is, and, and here's, here's the reality. I, 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 there's a thing in me that wants to say, wants, I want to diminish it, right? I, I want to I push it down. I want us to, to not look at sin squarely in the eye as Scripture says that it is because it's uncomfortable for me to say it and because I don't want, I don't want you to feel condemned, to be completely honest with you. When I was just starting out preaching, I'll be candid with you, I didn't, I didn't have a lot of trouble with that. I was, hey, it's just the truth, man, you've got to deal with it. Um, but as I've gotten older and as my sins have gotten higher and higher and higher, uh, man, preaching about sin is, it's a hard thing to do. And I keep wanting to jump off of the hard part and into the good part. Ha <laughs> <laughs> we're good, right? I want to do that, but here's the thing. If you're sitting here today and you say, if that's the definition of sin, then I am a sinner and I am condemned. You're very close to the gospel. You're very close to the gospel. If you go through that list and you say, yep, not me. I'm, not, I'm honestly not really talking to you today. It's those that look at that list and say, oh my goodness, that's me. Those are the people that God says are very close to the gospel because if I'm condemned, I need a savior. If I'm not condemned, I don't need a savior. If I'm good, I don't need help, but I'm not good, I need help. And I am condemned because I'm a sinner because that's me and I need Jesus. And so whenever we talk about sin, listen, I don't, I don't ever do it to make you feel uncomfortable. I don't ever do it to condemn you. I do it because scripture calls us to, number one, and number two, because I want you to know you need a Savior, and I want you to know one's available. And maybe you guys are thinking, but that I know that you need a Savior, and I want you to know one of, one's available would be a great place to say amen. <laughs> yeah. So Paul lays out this picture, and he says, I, I don't want you to walk this way. I don't want you to walk this way. I don't want you to live this way. Because what does he say in verse 20? This is not what you've learned in Christ. This is not what you've learned in Christ. So he lays out this path, this journey, this walk. And then he's going to give us this comparative study. And he's going to talk to us about living transformed. And that's ultimately what we want here at DR. We want people to be living transformed. We want people to be living being changed. We want people to be living being saved. We want people to be living being redeemed. And we want to, whenever we gather, say, God, Jesus is the same one that saved you and me, and let's worship him together. And so Paul is going to unpack for us this comparative study. And I want to tell you a quick story to kind of lay out what Paul says. Uh, one of the things that my boy and I like to do, and I know this sounds ridiculous, but whatever, is that we like to, we like to go to like finish line and champs and all that, and we go in and we look at all the, all the shoes, and I'm like, yo, that vintage shoe, I had that, right? I was cool way back then. And, uh, and, and he's pointing out the shoes that he likes and, and all this kind of thing, and, and, and we like to do that. Times come because he's growing at an abs absurd and obscene rate, making me angry, all right? Um, I, have I told you I remember when he was, have I said that? Yeah, 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 okay. Um, where he grows out of his shoes. And I'm always the one that, I'm like, I'll take him. 
And we go and we look at shoes and we, we try on shoes and we come to a decision on shoes and we're both excited. And Have you gone shoe shopping for kids' shoes lately? People want 80 bucks for shoes this big. It's ridiculous. Anyway, that's a different story. Um, so, so recently, he, he had some shoes, and we, we transitioned him out of the Velcros into the ties, and we went, and, and we looked at three or four different spots, and we came up with these shoes, and you want these? Yeah, man, I want these. I'm, I'm going to run super fast in these. I'm going to dunk on you, Dad, and all that kind of deal, and yeah, whatever, son. But, uh, so we get some New Balance, these black New Balance with the yellow soles and the yellow uh, N on them, and he's looking good and feeling good and that kind of deal. And we get home. And I'm like, hey, man, get your new shoes on so we can go out and play ball. No, I'm good. What? I'm going to wear my old shoes. Why? Because I don't want to get my new shoes dirty. <laughs> see, see, here's the thing. Um, I need you to put those new shoes on. Why? Because I just paid 40 bucks for them. That's why. <laughs> And he and I have had this conversation going back and forth that he, he likes to take care of his stuff, which is awesome. But he, he, will, he will stay in shoes that are making his toes look all gnarled, right? Because he doesn't want to get his new shoes dirty. Paul is going to tell us a very similar thing when he's talking about living a transformed life. And here's what I've noticed. I've noticed that people... When we talk about being transformed, we want to be transformed, but we don't know how to be transformed. And so Paul's going to lay this out for us, and I want you to remember the example that I gave you of Noah, and I want to give you three things. The first thing that Paul says, says to live a transformed life, and I'm going to use the way that, that I said it with Noah, is that you have to take your old shoes off. It starts with that. In order for you to put on the new, you have to take the old off. And the way that the Bible says to do that is first, I have to agree with God that they're old. The Bible calls this confession. That I open up God's word and I say, I agree with you, that's me. And I have to make a decision not only to agree with God, confess, but to act on God's definition. That's called repentance. Do you know how Noah would put his sweet New Balance shoes on? Take his old Velcro ones off. Listen to his daddy, son. Those are going to hurt your feet. No, they aren't. <laughs> right? That's what we do with sin. Our daddy looks down at us and says, son, this is cramping you. Son, this is crushing you. Son, this is going to hurt you. And we say, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good in this relationship. I'm good. Sweetheart, please, seriously, I, I bought you these new shoes. Just put them on. No, I just, I don't want. <sighs> Living a transformed life is agreeing with God not that, those new that those old shoes are old, that they need to be taken off, and then bending down and removing them. That's the first step to transformation. What are the things right now? That as you pray, that as you talk, that as you listen, God's saying to you, these are old shoes. This addiction is old shoes. This relationship is old shoes. The way you view your money is old shoes. The way that you view your work is old shoes. The way that, you, uh, that your temper is old shoes. I, I mean, we go on and on and on. It hurts you. It alienates others. It keeps you from living in the fullness that I have for you. Son, take the Velcro shoes off. That's the first step. Confession and repentance. Secondly, is that we have to change our thinking. The way that the Bible says this is be renewed in our mind. Here's the thing. Noah's going to have that, this transition between the Velcros and the New Balance where he's going to think to himself, those Velcros are way better than these new balance, isn't he? And he's gonna, and he said it to me, Dad, I can run faster in my old shoes. Dad, I can jump higher in my old shoes. Dad, I can dunk on you in my old shoes. And then I say, I thought you were gonna dunk on me in the new shoes, right? What, what's happening? He's looking back to something, even as it's crunching his feet. Even as it's, as it's hurting him, even as it's keeping him from doing all the things that he wants to do. 
And he's thinking to himself, the old way works better. Instead of believing his daddy that the new thing is not only going to be better for him, but it's going to allow him to do all of the things that we both want him to do. I want him to dunk on me. Because that means he's going to college for free. Right? <laughs> now put the stupid new bounce on. All right? Now. <laughs> yeah, we want the same thing. But his thinking around, around what he knows and around what the habit is and around what's comfortable is keeping him from experiencing the new. And so we have to believe God for who he says that he is. We have to believe God that he bought us a new pair of sweet shoes and that he loves to do that. We have to believe God that he's trustworthy, that he knows what we want and that the things that he gives us make that available and possible. We have to believe him. We have to trust him, and the Bible calls this faith. Faith. I have to believe God when he says, your marriage will work if you do this. Your marriage will not work if you do this. Your finances will work if you do this. Your finances will not work if you do this. Your relationships will work if you do this. We have to believe him. We have to believe him when he says, this is good. This is good. And next, we have to believe God, not only for who he says he is, but we have to believe God for who he says we are. Part of the transformation process, I've, I've noticed this. I've noticed that people, especially who grow up in church, they don't have a hard time with who God says that he is. They have a hard time with who God says he makes them. Yeah, I get, I get that God's good. I just don't think he would forgive me of this. Yeah, I, I get that God says I'm victorious, I just feel like I'm too weak in this area. And so part of the the transformation is, yes, confession and repentance, agreeing about the old thing and taking it off. Another part is the belief that what God has for me is good because he's good and that he empowers me to do it because that's what he promises to do. Thirdly, is to walk in the new shoes, right? I take my old shoes off. I agree that the new shoes are better. I walk over and I put them on. I put them on. And the scripture says that this is to put on your new self created after the likeness of God. I live in that. I believe that. I accept that. I trust God for who he says that he is and who he says that I am. And I want you to notice something about this new self. This new self is created and accomplished by God. <laughs> created and accomplished by God. In other words, listen, it's, it's like you go to the store and you buy a new shirt. And you put a shirt on that was created by somebody else and it's completed, right? You don't go to the store and buy a sleeve. I'll come back next week when the other sleeve is done. You don't do that. But that's how we view our faith and our walk with God. I have to, I have to get pieces of it as I grow into it. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say, go out and earn your new self. The Bible doesn't say, as you grow, I'll get you new stuff. It doesn't say that. It says, put on your new self created by God. And what that means is that God gives me and makes me a finished product in Jesus. And God doesn't say, earn your way toward it. What does he say? Put it on. Put it on. What, I, what was I saying to my son? Sweetheart, you like those shoes? Yeah. You own those shoes. Yep. Daddy bought them for you. Yep. Daddy bought them for you because he loves you. Yep. Will you please put them on? 
I didn't say to him, go out and run the 40-yard dash, and if you're under five seconds, you can wear him. But that's how we view God, isn't it? Go out and earn your new self. Go out and get it. Go out and show me that you deserve it. But that's not what God says. He says, this is sin. I want you to take that off. I don't, I don't want you to live in those old shoes anymore. They stink. They cramp your toes. They keep you from the things that I have for you. They keep you from looking fly. I'm just saying. Take them off, son. Take them off, sweetie. And then I want you to, I want you to believe me around my definition of sin. I want you to believe me that I've saved you, and I want you to believe me for who I say that you are, and then I want you to walk around in who I say that you are. I don't want you to take them off at the end of the day. I want you to just permanently leave on your new self that I've created and completed for you and that I've gifted to you by my grace. Last week, I had an opportunity to do a really cool thing. Um, John Gilmore is uh, uh, our deacon of recovery. He's a good man and has a deep heart for redemption at Damascus Road. And uh, I've enjoyed getting to know him and, and spend time with him. And uh, he invited me to give my testimony at Celebrate Recovery, the first Celebrate Recovery. I'd never been to a Celebrate Recovery. And so I was like, I like cornered him in the hallway of the office. Like, what, what am I supposed to say? And he's like, you're supposed to, Tell your story. About what? He's like, whatever you want. Okay. So, so I went to celebrate recovery, and it, it, was, it was awesome, man. There's 40 or 50 people in the room. If you missed last week, yeah, we can clap. Um, if, if you missed last week, I'm sure that John would get you in for this week and moving forward. All right. Is that true, John? Are you in the house today? John left. He's mad when he's talking about the same stuff. All right. Never mind. Scrap all that stuff I said about John. But celebrate recovery. I'm just kidding. So, so I went, and, and it was interesting to me to, to watch because people would come up front, and they'd introduce themselves. Hi, my name's such and such. And they would say, I'm a, I, I'm a grateful follower of Jesus, and I struggle with, and they would list their, their, their struggle. And I got to admit, I, I was really convicted by that because... It was, it was incredible for me to watch people very clearly articulate their old shoes and to say, this is, this is, this is what I'm dealing with, and to say it in front of 50 people, and, to, and, and everyone would say, hi, such and such, and person after person after person, and, and it was a really beautiful and wonderful thing for me. And, uh, and, and, and I, I've, I've been thinking about that, and I've been thinking about, because I stood up and I was like, I'm a mess, but I'm not exactly sure what, my, sure what my old shoes are. And so I've been thinking about that. And then I came to this, this passage here. And so uh, I want to conclude today by telling you who I am based on who Jesus is. I want to introduce myself to you that way. Can I do that? So because we're going to dismiss on this, I'm going to have you stand. And, um, and here's the thing that I, I want to do. I want you to understand that as I'm introducing myself to you, that if you're a follower of Jesus, I'm introducing you to you, all right? And so if at the end you want to say, hi, Tim, that'd be cool too, and give me like the, okay? So he, here we go. Are you ready? And then we're going to pray. Hi, my name's Tim. Not yet, not yet, after, after, man. All right. I'm a sinner saved by the grace of God. I'm a son of God, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. I have new and righteous will. I have the mind of Christ. I have a new heart. I'm victorious. I'm the residence of God's Holy Spirit. I'm a loving person. I'm filled with joy. I have perfect peace. I am patient. I am kind. I am good. I am faithful. I am gentle. I have self-control. The best part of this list, beyond the fact that it's all true, is that it was all given to me. It was given to me by my Savior Jesus, and this is who I am in Him. He is most glorified in me when I'm most satisfied in Him, 
And I am most gloriously changed as I in faith agree with who he says that I am. Thank you. Here's what I want you to know. I want you to know today that that sin breaks us. And I want you to know that as a sinner, you're broken. But I also want you to know that that's not the end of the story. And that when we walk around and we say, yeah, man, I'm broken, I'm a work in progress. To a certain extent, that's true. But here's what I also want you to know. In Christ, you're a completed and perfect work. And the enemy will allow you to walk around thinking that there's things left to do, that there's things left to say, that there's actions left to take, that there's beliefs yet to have. And I want to say to you today, as firmly and as clearly as I can, that God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him, and we are most gloriously changed when we agree with him about who he says that we are. And who God says that you are is perfect and whole and complete and new in him. And that's why we love him. Pray with me. God, I thank you today for who you say that I am. I admit to you, God, that my thinking is not fully renewed on this, that I still feel like I wear old shoes, that I still feel like maybe those are just the shoes that I have, the shoes that I'm going to have to wear, the shoes that that I'm going to have to walk around in. And I thank you, God, that you say that my new self isn't something that I have to earn. It isn't something out there somewhere someday. It's here and now that Jesus created it in his victory on the cross and that it is available to me to put on. God, I want us to not, to not diminish that work on the cross. I want us to accept the fact that we are a new creature in Christ. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I'm new. I'm whole. And I want to walk in that. I want to embrace that. And I want to live that out and walk that out for the glory of Jesus and for my joy. So I pray, God, that you would give us a very clear picture of what sin is in truth today. That we would look it squarely in the eye and that we would say, we are done with you. We are done with you, not on our own effort, not on our own merit, not by our own power. We are a new self because of who our Savior is. And in him today, we are victorious. And that we would walk out of here with our chins high, with our shoulders back, not because we've earned it, but because we serve a good king and a great savior who loves us and changes us by his blood. We thank you, Jesus, and we pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. All right. So we're going to sing. We're going to sing, we're going to take communion as a family, we're going to pray together and for one another, and we're going to give. If you come for any of those things, please do them, but please sing and please come up and take communion if you're a follower of Jesus. Let's enjoy this time of work.